Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time that we have to come and study your word together. Thank you for seeing us safely through another week. Thank you, Lord, for health and strength. Thank you, Lord, for the power of a sound mind. And this evening, I pray that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit and quicken our consciences and our minds. Help us to understand your word. Help us to know how to use our mind to be able to discern and understand your word and how it will apply to our lives and how you can bless us so that we can be a blessing to other people as well. Lord, please draw close to us even now. Grant us and grace us with thy Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be looking at Jesus' encounter with the centurion this evening. And for those that don't know, we've been going through the different people that Jesus has been encountering throughout his ministry on earth. And we are now in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Luke 7 and verse 1, the Bible says this, Now when he, speaking of Jesus, had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. Jesus, he had just finished teaching, and as he turned to go in a direction that he had set his face to walk down, a centurion's servant comes, uh, he essentially, a centurion's servant was sick, and he sent the elders, it says there in verse 3, to ask for healing. Now, this servant must have been dear to the centurion's heart. It must have been someone that maybe had even brought him up as he was a young boy. It was someone that was dear and favorable and lovable to him, and it must have been like family, this person. And he hears of Jesus, and he sends some of these elders of the Jews to go and speak to Jesus, to ask him if he would please come and heal his servant. How did the elders approach Jesus on behalf of the centurion? Notice there it says in verse, I believe it is verse 3, that it says that they beseeched him. They were begging him on behalf of this centurion. Let's continue. Verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. The elders said that this centurion was worthy of Jesus' attention. Worthy for Jesus to heal his servant. Almost as if it would be a privilege for Jesus to go to his house. Why? What was the reason that the elders gave? Because this man, this centurion, had built them a synagogue. And a synagogue was a place of worship. It was not the temple. It's like to us today, it is the church. So he had built them a church. And this man, he was pagan. He didn't believe in God, yet he was so generous to the Jewish nation, or at least to that city where he was in, to build that town a church so that they could worship God. He must have had some affinity for the Jews, otherwise he wouldn't have done such a thing. Maybe he had come to learn of their religion and accept their teachings. Maybe 
he, he had been listening to Jesus and his heart had been pricked. And uh, even though he, he, he didn't come and talk to Jesus personally, the Holy Spirit was probably working upon his heart. And he was accepting more of the, the religion of the Jews, of the Israelites, than that of which he grew up in, in the Roman pagan culture. He had not fully converted to their teachings yet, but surely the Holy Spirit was making an impression upon his heart, and it moved him to go and build a synagogue for the town that he was living in. Now, let's continue first. Luke chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. At the appeal of the elders, Jesus immediately sets out for the man's house. It was urgent. The servant was about to perish, and Christ, he did not need this sort of urging or recommendation that this man was worthy. Jesus came for this reason, to relieve the earth of sin-sick people, but also those that were in physical sickness as well. He came to be a blessing, a fountain of life. So he didn't need this sort of appeal. Oh, the centurion man, he was worthy. That's not the reason why Jesus took off. Not because he was worthy, but because had any appeal come to, from anybody, no matter what they had done or what they had not built, Jesus would still have gone to try and relieve those that were suffering. But on the way there, what happens? The centurion sends some of his friends to come and speak to Jesus. To tell him what? What did they say? Jesus, don't trouble yourself. I am not worthy. Speaking on behalf of the centurion, I am not worthy for you to come under my house. I'm not worthy for you to step foot in my place. Not because it was messy, but he realized that he himself neither thought I myself even worthy to come to you. Now we know in other, uh, other stories in the Bible, uh, Matthew, it says that the centurion himself came. But here he says that he didn't even think himself worthy to come and even speak to Jesus himself. That's why at the beginning he sent the elders. And then when he was on the way, he changed his mind. He's like, no, 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 I'm not worthy. And he sent his friends to say, no, 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 I'm not worthy for you to come. You know, at the beginning, he asked the elders to ask Jesus for help. And what did the elders say? This man is worthy. Why? Because he built them a church. They gave an outward sign of his worthiness. He had donated a lot of money. He had single-handedly built a church in the area for them. Too often we determine a person's worthiness based upon outward appearances, outward acts. We determine worthiness based upon how much tithe a person donates to the church. We determine a person's worthiness of what sort of car they drive to church or to drive in general. We determine a person's worthiness based upon the sort of clothes they wear sometimes. We determine a person's worthiness based on their status and their wealth. Surely God is with them or else God 
would not bless them like this. And we look at the riches, we look at the material possessions, and we go, God is with this man. God blessed him with riches. Surely God, he is worthy. We think them worthy. And man, they place a too high an estimation of man upon themselves, of others, and of those around them. We, we, we think too high of ourselves. We think too highly of others. And so these elders, when they came to Jesus, they said, this centurion, he is worthy. He is worthy. Why? He built us a synagogue. And we got to be so careful, friends, about esteeming people so highly, praising people so highly, flattering them with our lips. And look at what the Bible says here in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. James chapter 2 and verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not partial in yourselves, and become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But he hath despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Friends, we have to be so careful in regards to who we respect, who we give that respect to. Too often we give the rich too much respect. We say they are worthy. And according to James, it's a sin. It is a sin to respect one class over another, the rich over the poor. And I'm not saying that the elders were doing this, but based upon what they saw of this centurion, he truly was a rich man. He must have been. No one can go and just build a whole church by themselves for, for a, a, another group of people. I mean, come on, you must have spare change. This guy was not a Jew. He had not accepted the, the Jewish teachings, the, 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 the word of God yet. But yet, you know, he went and built that church for them. And so, too often we, we determine people's worthiness by what we see in how much they have in their bank account or how much they live. we got to be so careful. However, the centurion, Jesus is coming, and maybe he hears about it and he sends his friends. The centurion has a clear estimation of himself. He tells Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to even step into my house. He sent his friends to tell him, I'm not worthy. Not worthy for you to come to my house. Not worthy for me to even come to you and speak to you. I'm not worthy. And he understood. 
Titus chapter 3 verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. He didn't look to his own works of righteousness. He didn't look at the, the synagogue and say, hmm, send for Jesus. He didn't do that. He didn't look at how much he'd spent on the Jewish nation and Jesus is a Jew, the Israelites owe me a favor. No. He didn't use his riches to, to throw things around and try to get privileges from the country that he'd blessed and the nation that he'd blessed. No, he had a clear estimation to him, of himself. He didn't look at his works of righteousness, even though he could have. Look, it must have been a heart of, of love that was filling up inside there that he went out and, and built this church for the Jewish nation of which he was not a part. Surely God had been working upon his heart already. But he didn't go, hey, you guys owe me. I built you this, now you got to help me. He didn't do that. He knew he needed help. And even though he had all these riches, he had come to understand that those riches could not save his servant, his beloved servant. He was desperate, and so he remained humble. He didn't let their praise or even his riches or his own works get to his head. Here was the situation that was spread before him. His servant was about to die, and no amount of money could bring him back from death. And so he was desperate. But you know what's also very interesting? Notice how the centurion addresses Jesus. He calls him Lord. Do you know what the word Lord means? It means master. Not even Nicodemus, the, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the leader of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. He was rich as well. But not even Nicodemus called Jesus that. He just called him rabbi, a teacher. But this centurion, this non-Christian, he addresses Jesus as master, as Lord. He recognized the authority of Christ. He recognized the, the, the position that Christ had. He wasn't just any ordinary man, just to be commanded by anybody, to be bought by riches. Oh no. But he understood that he had to be humble. He knew his position and he understood where he himself stood in context of Christ, the Messiah. And remember, this centurion was a pagan. He was a pagan. And yet those in the churches today often have a higher disregard for the ministry of Jesus and even his position. You know, it's always important, friends, to remain humble. It's always important to remember our position in regard to Jesus Christ. Look, He is the elder brother of our race. That's what the Bible says. He wants to be in a loving relationship with us. He was a friend to Moses and to Abraham. They spoke face to face. But let us never, ever, ever to forget that He is the sovereign of the universe that He holds the worlds in His hands, that He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And though He wants to have a personal relationship with us, He's still our God and our Savior. You know, I've heard people pray before, Hey God, 
Happy Sabbath. How are you today? To me, that just sounds so blasphemous. And maybe maybe you might say, hey, Ben, it's because you don't have a relationship um, with Jesus the way this person does. I, I don't think I could ever get to that point. We've got to be so careful. We've got to remember our position and Christ's position. He was king of kings. And this pagan man, this non-Christian, called him Master, Lord. Look, I'm not saying that we should grovel and uh, come to him on our knees or anything, but we've got to have a humble view of ourselves and an exalted view of Christ because that is where the centurion stood. He understood his position. But let's continue. How was it that the centurion wanted Jesus to heal his servants? Luke chapter 7 and verse 7. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. Or this is how Matthew says it in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 8, the parallel story. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. The centurion believed in Jesus so much that all he wanted Jesus to do was just speak the word only, and that was it. He didn't believe that he needed to do anything else, nothing else. Jesus, just speak the word only. You don't need to come and touch him. You don't need to come and see him. You don't need to lay your hands upon him or, 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 or anoint him with anything. You don't even need to pray for him in person. You just say, the word and he'll be healed. And he gives an explanation as to, to, to why he arrived at this conclusion. As we go back to Luke chapter 7, we go now and read verse 8. And this is what the centurion says, For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say to one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. You know, he gave the context as to why he believed in such a way. You know, if he had such power as a man to command his army, that if he said to one, go, and they went, and to another one, come, and they came, then if Jesus was God, then he must have had even more power because he himself wouldn't have to go. He could send angels to minister unto them and heal the servant like that. He understood the authority of the word. He understood it. And uh, I think sometimes this is where, uh, I just want to throw in a bit of parenting in, okay? But I think this is where it's really important for parents to help children to understand the authority of your word, that you mean what you say. You know, many times I, I see parents, the way they train children is like, uh, well, you better do this now. One, two, three, and they give them chances and they count into it and uh, the child doesn't move and then they get up and, you know, they, there's no consequences. We got to be careful that we teach children how to understand the authority of our word because when we get old, when they get older, it makes it easier for them to understand and to believe the authority of God's word. This centurion, he just said, speak the word 
only. Speak the word only, Jesus. Your word is enough for us. We realize how powerful your word is. Just your word and your word only. And that's enough. Look at what Jesus declares after he hears what the centurion says. Luke chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said to the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. He declares to the people that were following Jesus. Of course, they were looking. They wanted to see Jesus heal another man. And Jesus declares, wow, this man, this centurion, has great faith. Do you know there's only two instances, two times, two times in all of Jesus' ministry on earth where he declares someone has great faith. The first, it's obviously here. But the second is found in Matthew 15, 28. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee as thou wilt. Now, you don't know the, the background of Matthew 15, but I just want to say it simply like this. This woman, you go back and read the background later on, but this woman, she was a non-Christian. She was non-Jewish. She was a Gentile. And what's very interesting is both of them were Gentiles, non-Christians. Could it be that greater faith exists outside of the church than in the church? Have we come to the point where we in the church have become skeptics? You know what a skeptic is, right? I don't believe. No faith. That we're not able to take God at His word? What has happened? Gentiles having greater faith in Jesus and us? That doesn't make sense. Look, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's Romans 10, 17. What has happened to us in the church? That a person from outside can be declared to have greater faith than those in the church who are meant to be following Jesus and worshiping Jesus. What happened? You know, in Matthew chapter 8, Verses 10 through 12, look at what Jesus says. It's the, it's the same story, but look at how it's said here. Matthew 8, verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you see that in verse 11? He, he says there that those that come from the east and the west. Okay, then maybe that's surrounding towns. But then he says, verse 12, But these people that are coming from the east and the west are in contrast to the children of the kingdom. That was the Jews. 
Jesus is saying that there will be other people that will come in. So th this text is really important for us to understand because, look, it's, it's not that we should be going to other religions to learn from them because they have great faith, okay? It's not that. The centurion man came to the Jews. He came to Christ. He accepted the faith of the Jews. The Holy Spirit was working upon his heart. That's why he built them a synagogue and not the Romans, a temple. He accepted Christ into his heart. It's just that the people in the world seem to have simpler faith than those in the church today. They more readily accept the Word of God than those that are Christian all their life. The centurion represented those that would come in at the end of time. Many would come in from the east and the west. Friends, it doesn't matter that you've gone to church all your life. It doesn't matter. Church does not save you. Look, what saves us is our faith. And that's why this salt class that we're studying uh, in this week and next week is, is so foundational to our faith because we're studying conversion and righteousness by faith. What saves us is our faith. And Jesus said to the centurion, great is your faith. I've not found any in Israel. It's like someone coming in off the street and saying, man, you have great faith, more than all these people sitting in church today. That's what was happening. It's what you choose to do with the blessings that church affords, that church gives you. It's at church that you can come into contact with the mind of Christ as a preacher stands up to preach, as you're able to sing, sing hymns and songs that would lead you to thoughts of Jesus. Listen to prayers and praises of people. It's at church that you can grow in faith. And yet so many have none. And I'm sure that if you went up to the pastor today and you said, Pastor, I don't have a Bible. Can you please give me a Bible so I can read it? The pastor would be so happy. He would give you one for free. I'm sure of it. But we aren't doing that. We aren't. The pastor has to stand up on the pulpit to remind people to read their Bibles, to come up with creative ways to get people's attention to come to church. We're going to come up with games and activities and social gatherings to keep people in the church. Preaching is not enough. Bible study is not enough. We respond by saying things like, Oh, what? The Bible again? Sabbath school, divine service? That's enough for me. Sabbath afternoon, we should do something else. Choir practice or go out for a nature walk or do some, something else. But many of us, we, we get tired of it. We get tired of studying the Bible. We're expected to be able to compete with the world though, you know? But the problem is the church has gone chasing after the world. We've not realized the precious gift that God has given to us in His Word and in the person of Jesus Christ. And many of us, because of that, when bad things happen, like our loved ones pass away, or in this case, a centurion, his servant. It's not, even, it's not even his relative, but maybe it's someone, of course, he grew up with all his life. But it's a servant that he's so pained to see who's at the point of death. And many in the church, they, they, they turn around and they blame God. God, why did you do this to me? Why didn't you help me? Instead of realizing that God is using this situation to bring us to our knees and have a deeper devotion with Him. But so many of us, we get 
angry at God. We, we, we turn away our, our, our lives and our minds from Him because God didn't help us, you know. But the church, we've, we've gone chasing after the world. We've not realized that precious gift in Jesus Christ. Our faith is weak. We've not been seeking after it. We've not been making it our first, our best, and our last. We've been seeking after the world and its riches, our careers, and our money, and our status, and our degrees. We, we, we put so much effort into all these things. And then we still ask God to bless us, even though He's an afterthought. He occupies 1% of our time, if sometimes it's zero. The world has taken hold of our lives. And uh, yet there are people out there in the world who are heathen, that are non-Christian, and they're sitting in darkness, but they're ready to accept the grace that is offered so freely to them when it comes. How many of us today who are living in the time, the time where the light from the Word of God shines the brightest, we're living in this time only to disregard it when it shines into our hearts today. We're too busy. We tell God later. We get distracted. And uh, we, we, we tell others not to make emotional decisions to follow Jesus. Giving up your studies to work for, or, or your work is frowned upon today, you know, just to go to a Bible school. We tell them you can go later. We tell them you've got to get your career ready and uh, stop relying on your parents and then you go and study Bible school. We tell people such things, well-meaning, because we care about their life. You know what I mean? We have these well-meaning people in the church and when one wants to give up their life to follow Jesus, we ask them, are you sure? Are you sure? We try to discourage them and say, oh, you can serve God, um, you know, as much as a, a lay person can serve God as much as a pastor. We tell them you can be just as useful. Oh, no, friends. We need more full-time workers today. The harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. And the reason why we have so few laborers is because even at our leadership level, our church is lukewarm. And a person who wants to go and study the Bible and commit their life to Jesus, they're walking that road alone. Because so many of us who seem like God blesses us, that we are worthy, we tell those that are wanting to follow Christ, wait, think about it, pray about it. Are you sure? And we put doubt into their hearts. Friends, I ask you this evening, how many more sermons do you need to hear? How many more Bible studies do you need to receive? How many more visits do you need from the pastor or the Bible worker before you're willing to stand up and be counted in the Lord's work? Stop getting caught up with the world and let's, let's jump on the gospel train and let's take our faith more seriously today than we ever have. You know, we're in a second lockdown here in Malaysia. And uh, cases have gone up and up. And some of us were more busy with work during this lockdown than we have been when it was lifted before. But there are others who are much more free. We have more time. 
But either way, I think we need to make that time again to spend with Jesus. Too many of us, we've gotten used to being in a lockdown. Do you understand that? When March came around last year, there were a lot of people watching online my sermons. And I think people were just kind of figuring out what, what should we do, what should we do? And some people were panicking and some people were, were, were going round and round in circles, maybe wondering, oh, the, the, this is the end of the world. And, you know, 10 months later, we've gotten used to our new normal. And we are not building our faith. We were reading for a while. We tuned in more for a while. But then we got comfortable. Then we got used to being in this situation. Wearing a mask whenever you go out and coming back, oh, it's no big deal, life is just going on. I'm trying to get back to normal. You know, Elijah, as I close here, I just want to stop and think about it and share about his life for a second. You know, Elijah was, Elijah in the Bible, Elijah was a man that learned to live by every word of God. When he stood before King Ahab to tell this wicked king that there would be no rain until he says so, it was because the word of God guided him there. And then it was the word of God that told him to go to the brook Cherith and uh, hide himself there, not go home and just stay there and keep himself there and be, be sure that he's safe because there were people that would be hunting for his life. And then after that, when the brook dried up, it was the word of God again that told him to go to the widow of Zarephath. God guided him every step of the way. Now, let me ask you, have you ever wondered what Elijah did while he was living by the brook Cherith? Look, there was no rain for three and a half years. We don't know how long he was with the widow. But surely, I, I, I would probably venture to say that he was probably by that brook Cherith for at least six months, if not one year, maybe even longer. We don't know, okay? But have you ever wondered what Elijah did all that time? He couldn't go home. He couldn't run to his parents' place. People were hunting for him everywhere. He had to stay where God told him to stay. And he was right there. He didn't even go hunting for food. The, the, the birds brought him food. Do you ever wonder what Elijah did while he was just sitting there? Do you think he was just a daydreamer? I don't think so. I think he was meditating even more upon the Word of God. I think even though he had a smaller portion of the Bible than what we have today, he spent even more time in it to make sure that God was with him, to make sure that in this crisis, even though he was the one that told the king because he was so wicked that there would be no rain, that God was judging Israel and going to bring revival around eventually, he had to make sure that his life was right. And he was walking with Jesus meditating on his word, and he didn't get restless. He didn't forget the time that he was living in. He didn't get upset at God. Why, God, did you bring me here and get me to tell Ahab all these words? Now my life is in danger. No, his life had been guided by God up to that time, and he had used that time 
even at the brook Cherus, to draw even closer to God. God was preparing him for something bigger. And I believe that God in this time is preparing each and every one of you for something bigger. And maybe you are getting restless already after four days of lockdown. Three days, pardon me. And you want your life to get back to normal. You want your business to open up. You want to be able to start earning. You didn't ask for this lockdown or this pandemic or this disease, but look, it's here, friends. And there are those whom God is preparing for the end times ahead. And even for His second coming. Are you one of them? Or is there someone that's going to come in from the east or the west that is going to take your place? At the end of time, when Jesus comes back for a second time, I ask again, and I asked this before, in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Will he find a group of people that are still in love with him, that are still seeking his word, that are still learning to live by every word of God, and that they are learning to exercise all the faith that they have by learning to just ask Jesus, speak the word only? Will he find you faithful? Look. MCO version, well, MCO is the, the lockdown here in, in KL, but MCO version 2, for us, we, we, we have to use our time more wisely. This is not CMCO conditional. This is not our MCO recovery. This is the lockdown like what we had back in March, the most severe. And most of us, if not all of us, are stuck at home. Let's use this time more wisely. If you frittered away those moments last year, here's another opportunity. Now is the time to spend more time in reading again. Now is the time to spend more time to pray. Now is the time to spend more time to build your faith. And let's make faith our work in this time that we have. I don't know how long we're going to be in a lockdown. But surely God has His reasons. And I pray that we would redeem the time, that we would use this time wisely, that even in the midst of all that we're going through, we would take time to pause, to build our faith, so that we can get to that point one day and speak to Jesus and say, God, just speak the word only. Just speak it. That's all you need to do. Just as Peter was at the edge of that boat, and he said, Jesus, if that's really you, bid me to come out. And Jesus said just one word. He said, come. And it was enough for him to obey. And maybe God is preparing you for the mission field one day. God is surely preparing all of us for something great so that we can be greater lights to this world. For friends, the light of the gospel is shining down in our time today. My question is, what are you going to do with it? May God find us faithful today. 
May he give us the faith of Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for reminding us about the power of your word. And this evening, you, you, you've shaken us awake because you, you helped us realize that there are other people that are going to come in and take our place, that there are people that, that have this simple faith that even though we've been going to church for so long, Lord, we can still miss out. Father, please, help us to build our faith. Help us to have a simple faith to take you at your word. Speak the word only. Father, please, May that be our focus as a Christian. It's not even about going to church. It's about your word and taking lodgment in our hearts. Lord, please, may you help us to surrender our hearts to you, that you can shine that light, that word into our hearts this evening. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit. Fill us with thy word. Keep us faithful to you until the very end, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.